Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And welcome to Material Girls, a pop culture podcast that uses critical theory to understand the zeitgeist. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. Hannah, what the heck are we talking about today? I have <laughs> been distracted lately. You know what? The world's been distracting. But speaking of distraction, we're talking about something real fun today. We are talking about games. <gasps> we're talking about one game in particular, but. Let's warm up by talking about games in general, because Marcel, mm-hmm. I know that you're a real game player, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I'm not sure I do. You like playing board games and like party games and stuff. I love games. I chalk it up to being an only child. Um, mm. I grew up wanting to play games. Um, and <sighs> <laughs> sorry, we got real sad real quick. But instead, sitting alone in a darkened room. <laughs> Until relatively recently, there weren't a lot of good two-player games. Or mm. if there were, they weren't readily accessible. Like board game cafes are pretty new. Specialty board game stores are not really new. But like in my small town where I grew up, we didn't have any. And so like if it wasn't a game that we just knew about because my family had played it, for eons, you know, like Monopoly or Sorry or Scategories, whatever. Like, those are not good two-player games. No. They're not great games at all. Like, the <gasps> game when we were... Sorry. Sorry, Monopoly. I think it's a really boring game. Scategories is a phenomenal Scategories game. Scategories is pretty good. That is not... We're not allowed to play it in my partner's household because of a fight. Between? Between said partner and his brother. Mm. 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 Good. Mm. And that is the good part about growing up as an only child. <laughs> okay, so yeah, when we were kids, I feel like it was just like shoots and ladders and Jenga and yeah, not much maybe. else. And I also feel like board games have gotten like a lot better. Definitely. In the past decade. Yeah. Do you have any real standout faves? What's your favorite kind of game? Okay, so there's this really beautiful, thoughtful game called Photosynthesis. Mm. The mechanic is very simple. We can play it with our kid. And it's just about growing trees. I swear to God, Hannah, the first time I played it, I've never been so stressed out about anything (laughs) in my entire life. Like I 
was sweating. I was so stressed about what order to plant the acorns <laughs> so that the trees would grow and maximize access to the sunlight. So like that apparently... You're like, this is so much responsibility. I know. That is apparently not the kind of game that <laughs> I enjoy playing. I think I really like playing games that involve a board that you traverse with little pieces. I really like little pieces. Yes. <laughs> I like to have little pieces to move around the board. I like tile games. I like, you know, the different variations of Carcassonne. Or yes. there's a game you may have heard of. It's called Settlers of Catan. Um, I don't know her. I really like the original. I'm not a huge fan of all of the many, many, many expansions. Um, One time, everyone, this is not a story for Marcel because she was there. This is a story for the rest of you. <laughs> One time we were on vacation in Banff <laughs> and uh, we were playing a game of Settlers of Catan. And an important thing to know about Marcel is that she is unbelievably competitive. You wouldn't but, think because she's so... in the game. Only, only like, in the I game. I don't carry it. I don't take it with me out of no, the game. I'm no. just a real bitch in the game. Yeah, and she was losing to our friend Steve. I always fucking lose to Steve and I hate it. And Steve made a move in the game that really <laughs> fucked Marcel over. And Marcel screeched at such a high pitch that it woke our friend Todd who was sleeping on the couch and Todd jerked up and kicked over a can of soda that was on the table beside the couch and the open can of soda fell into my backpack. And just poured out. Just poured out in Hannah's backpack. That might be the funniest thing that's ever happened. Don't play Settlers of Catan with Marcel if you value your eardrums. I would say don't play Settlers of Catan with Steve because he's <laughs> a bastard. <laughs> Enough playing around. We're going to get serious. And we're going to talk about why this, why now. It's not a game. This is serious business. We are going to identify the historical, ideological, and material conditions that allowed our object of study, Dungeons and Dragons, to become zeitgeisty. Mm, Marcel, first, thank you so much for indulging me in making what I anticipate will be the first of many episodes about Dungeons and Dragons. So get ready. You're welcome. So I was feeling a little stressed about this episode because there is so much to cover. And it's a world that I'm like pretty immersed in. So I was like, how would I, how could I even scratch the surface? And then I decided, let's just scratch the surface. Let's just make this like 101 level, like, you don't know anything about D&D &D and you're kind of like, hey, why are people talking about it more now than they used to? We're really just going to start there. That's such a good idea. Yeah. So if you're like a deep, a deep D&D &D fan, just come with me for the theory and for my madcap hypothesis. Oh. Uh, but don't expect me to say anything truly revelatory <laughs> in this episode. <laughs> you have to wait for the subsequent ones. For now, mm -hmm. we are going to travel back in time to 1974. Barbara Streisand's burning up the billboards. Oh, oh my goodness. Did you know she had the top song of the year? The Way We Were, from the movie. Oh, I didn't know. And it's the year that President Nixon resigned from office in the wake of the Watergate scandal. Ah, uh, now that was a good time. And both of those things are less important than the other thing that happened, which is that two nerds, Dave Arneson <laughs> and the spectacularly named Gary Gygax, 
best name in human history, created a brand new kind of game. So the very first version of Dungeons and Dragons was based on an already established genre of war games. So, you know, can you picture like, say in Game of Thrones, when like everybody's standing around those troop maps and they've got those little figurines and they like push them around? It's risk, right? I mean, it's I know it's not literally risk. Risk is another, like, is a board game adaptation of war games. Okay. It's significantly simpler than war games because war games have, like, different kinds of troops that have different tactics and can move in different ways. Right. But, yeah, it's basically that idea. is like you're controlling troops and trying to, like, win a war. The really important uh, innovation that Arneson and Gygax came up with was the idea that individual players, instead of role-playing as, like, a whole army or a whole nation would role-play as individual characters. (gasps) That is revolutionary. Yeah. And then instead of, like, clashing on a battlefield, they were like, cool, it's, like, going to be, like, a party of adventurers who are getting together to, like, fight monsters and find treasure. So, like, you're going on an adventure and you're role-playing as the one adventurer rather than you know, all of these troops. And surely dragons. Yeah, 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 for sure. Am I jumping? <laughs> am I getting out? <laughs> for sure, for sure. It's right there, dungeons. So, you know, in the original versions, you're doing a lot of, like, exploring dungeons. <laughs> and then dragons, you would fight mm-hmm. dragons. Yeah, and, like, monsters in general. So at its most pared-down version, you can picture D&D as a group of heroes with different abilities, exploring a dungeon, fighting monsters, finding treasure, with the aid of someone called a dungeon master. Ooh, kinky. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Nerds, fuck. Nerds, famously, fuck. So (laughs) that, though, the dungeon master, that's another key difference that D&D introduced. The idea that there's someone who's running the game, who's not inhabiting the role of a single character, but as one of my favorite D&D podcasts puts it, they're playing everyone and everything else. Mm, So... uh They're the ones who, like, they know the dungeon map. So, like, they know where everything is and there's, like, hidden doors and what the answers to the riddles are. And they control the monsters and they play any other characters you come across, which are known as NPCs. Ah, non-player characters. I know Non-player characters, exactly. And all of the, you know, we're familiar with a lot of this terminology from video games now. That's right. But the genre of RPG video games came from D&D. Can I ask a quick clarifying question? Yeah. So we have a dungeon master and you've been referring to exploring the dungeon and it is literally only just occurring to me right now that the dungeon is literal. That's the literal setting. (laughs) Is that the literal (laughs) setting? It's a dungeon. Yeah. In a lot of early versions, the idea is that like, you know, you arrive in a dungeon that's like full of traps and monsters and treasure and then you just do what's referred to as a dungeon crawl. The game now is, like, significantly more expansive, but that's, like, the traditional version is, like, we're fighting monsters in a dungeon. Okay. We're fighting dragons in a dungeon. We're in a dungeon and there's dragons. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, this sounds this sounds very straightforward. A nice game of make-believe amongst friends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is and it isn't. The basic idea of playing make-believe with friends, very straightforward. But the history of D&D, kind of complicated. And we could tell it in a variety of different ways. But one really key development has been the evolving rule sets of the different editions. So, Marcel, do you know what edition of D&D we are on right now? 
No. Can I take a guess? Yeah. 70. <laughs> no, it's five. We're on five. five. Oh, it's so it's not like one per year. We're, it's no, <laughs> it's also hasn't been 70 years since 1974, but that's fine. You know what? Sometimes <laughs> math is not straightforward. <laughs> Nobody's here for math. And you know what else is not straightforward is the editions history of Dungeons and Dragons, luckily for us. Okay. So, that first edition was published in 1974 by um, Tactical Studies Rules, or TSR, which is the really terrible name that Gygax gave to the publishing company that he created to publish D&D, because nobody else would publish it. So, uh, yeah, it was functionally self-published. In 1977, they split it into two versions. So they created Basic D&D, which was supposed to be a bit more sort of rules light and accessible to new players, and advanced D&D, which was known as AD&D, which should not be confused with ADD, which I literally did once when I was working in chapters. <laughs> a, teen, a teen boy came up and asked me for books about AD&D, and I was like, I'm in the mental health section. And he was like, what? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so... Okay. AD&D was, like, way more complicated. Okay. So as somebody who's only played some, like, very light, introductory, not dungeon-y tabletop RPGs, talk to me about why people would want a more complicated version. What's the get? Yeah, I think I think it's a really good question, and I think we can compare it to the satisfaction of playing, like, these, you know, fairly new, elaborate European-style board games like mm. Settlers of Catan or Betrayal at House on the Hill or think about the experience of playing one of those versus playing like Sushi Go. Okay. Right? Yeah. Like rules are part of the world building that games do and more complex games with more rules can also feel more engaging and immersive. It's, it's just that they have a really significant like barrier to entry because of the learning curve. Right. So you might want to play a very straightforward game like Sushi Go with a group of friends when you also want to be having conversations at the same time. But you can't really have conversations when you are trying to decide whether or not it is ethically or morally sound to put in roadblocks for the areas of the world that cannot be cured by, sorry, Pandemic Legacy. No spoilers. It's a very good game. Or rather, the conversations that you have while you're playing Pandemic Legacy are about playing Pandemic Legacy. Exactly. Because you all need to be fully immersed and involved in the game together in order to play it. And there's like a great deal of pleasure at being involved and immersed in a complex task with a group of friends. That's why people like escape rooms. Okay. I have another quick question, but if it comes up later, we can talk about it later. How much does like wanting to act like acting come into it right like you're role playing yeah. so you're like performing a role you take on a character uh, and stuff it's such a good question and we are actually going to get more into the question of gameplay versus storytelling a little later on because that is one of the like really key conversations happening around D&D is like is it a game and the point is to try to win or is it a mechanism for collaborative storytelling okay very cool. Great. So let's go back briefly to editions. So new editions of D&D have continued to be this ongoing negotiation between accessibility and complexity. Mm -hmm. So like 
drawing in new players on the one hand and then catering to the tastes of established fans on the other hand. And, of course, complexity can have a gatekeeping function. So, like, the harder a game is to learn and play, the more exclusive it can be. You might rely on somebody else to teach you how to play it. And yes, for certain iterations of nerd culture, exclusivity is a big part of the appeal. Mm-hmm. So you can think of D&D in the 80s and 90s as like an extension of the, you know, the paradigmatic comic book store, like a niche cultural space defined by its hostility to outsiders and by the dominance of like a kind of like counter hegemonic white masculinity that is not, you know, conventional, culturally celebrated masculinity, but is still hostile to women and people of color. You know, comic book guys. I know, I know. The the Simpsons comic book guy is nothing if not a classic representation of that exact hostility. Yes, yes, precisely. Okay, so this is really interesting to me because I feel like all the queers in my life are totally obsessed now with D&D. And so somewhere something has changed. Yeah. <laughs> and not even yeah. just like basic D&D, but like really rich, immersive <laughs> world building D&D. So yeah. like someone got in. <laughs> yep, we did. We squirreled our way in. So a whole bunch of things changed to turn D&D from being this deeply niche subcultural activity into something that is, I'm arguing, zeitgeisty. And I'll try to trace a few of them for you. But okay. what I think is a really key moment is the publication of the fifth edition, D&D 5E. Okay. So to describe the key differences with 5E, I'm going to ask you to read this quote from a 2014 Polygon article written by one Griffin McElroy. Oh, your littlest yeah, brother. You know, my littlest brother. Thank you. Thank you for knowing me. Quote, Conceptually, the fifth edition of D&D is moving away from a board game-centric aesthetic towards a system that allows players to carry out their game in any way they'd like. The new edition's rules are built around broad mechanics, which can be used to interpret creative ideas without worrying about whether a character has the right predetermined powers to accomplish those feats or how that information will be reflected on a game board. It's less mechanical and more theatrical, end quote. So we're back to your question about how much of the pleasure is performance. <laughs> and D&D 5e really leans into the pleasures of performance. Okay. Like they've redesigned the mechanics to let it be a very character decision-driven game <laughs> rather than being driven by like, knowing how to play the game strategically and win. So in 2014, D&D, which is now owned by Wizards of the Coast, which created the Magic the Gathering card game, mm-hmm. which bought TSR in 1997 and in turn was acquired by Hasbro in 1999. So Hasbro, which like owns every game, owns Wizards of the Coast, which owns D&D. Okay, okay. So they released this new edition with the explicit goal of maximizing the game's flexibility. So... If you love, like, rule lawyering and, like, playing strategically within the possibilities of, like, different mechanics within the game, cool. There's absolutely a rule system available to you with a huge number of expansions and specializations and new worlds to play in. But if you prefer a more organic and, like, rules-light approach to play that really focuses on 
storytelling and performing and role playing, then literally the first rule of 5E is that the dungeon master can change any of the rules they want in order to tell a story. Whoa. (laughs) That's a lot of freedom. (laughs) It's a huge amount of freedom. So that means, for example, that the game doesn't just have to be about murdering monsters and ransacking tombs. It can be about, like, relationships. Ooh. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. That all makes sense. But doesn't the importance of the dungeon master still, like, present the same gatekeeping problem? Like, how can you expand the demographics of who plays the game when it still relies on, like, one central figure in the game who knows all the rules? And who can decide if and when they change the rules? (laughs) Yeah, 100%. And so, like... Even if it's more accessible now, it's like, cool, I still have to play in the world being created for me by a dungeon master. And if that dungeon master is, say, like a straight white guy whose idea of gameplay is based in violence and conquest, then that's still going to shape my experience of the game, no matter how comparatively rules light it is. Uh So the second transformation I want to talk about is the rise of actual play podcasts and web series. Oh, okay. So for those of you who aren't familiar, actual play media is just what it says on the tin. It's media that shows you people actually playing a role-playing game. Often D&D, not always D&D, because there's a much larger world of role-playing games out there. So, Marcel, can you think of another significant cultural phenomenon that also launched in 2014? That's right. It's the True Crime Podcast Serial. You knew Uh, that. I Yeah, I, I knew that. <laughs> that is frequently cited as the turning point that made podcasts mainstream. Yeah. And right around the same time, another new media platform was also rapidly rising into a new position of cultural dominance, and that is Twitch. Oh, that's the one where you watch people play video games when we were still doing Which Please. Friend of the pod, Michelle Thompson, came and talked to us about people on Twitch playing the Harry Potter role-playing game. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of the way that people interact with and experience games now is watching other people live stream them through Twitch. Okay, this is a genuine question, and it's because I've never done it. So I'm going to ask it, and maybe it's going to sound bitchy, and I don't mean it to be bitchy. It is a genuine question. What is the pleasure of watching other people play a game that you yourself could be playing but are not playing? There's a few different pleasures to it. One is that for very popular Twitch streamers, uh, it's personality driven. So they like have running commentary as they play and people will get, you know, fond of in the same way that you might listen to a podcast that like is kind of about nothing, you know, that isn't like a valuable, well-researched educational podcast like ours, but it's just (laughs) like... You know, like several of my favorite podcasts are like two to three white male comedians just kind of chatting. <laughs> like, I love the McElroy brothers. Yes. They're not yeah. bringing a huge amount of substance into my life, but I have a very intense parasocial relationship with them and I find it very soothing to just listen to them chat. Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. I don't listen to my brother, my brother and me anymore. But whenever I overhear my partner, Trevor, listening to 
one of the numerous podcasts that he listens to and one of the McElroys is on it. I'm always like, that's my older brother, Justin McElroy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that's part of the appeal. And part of the appeal is also as video games get more and more complicated and more and more expensive, people will often watch Twitch streamers to learn how to play a new game, to see what a game is like before they buy it because you can watch it get test played, to get tips on how to play a particularly hard game. You can watch playthroughs. So like that's part of the culture as well. Mm -hmm. And while, you know, as a platform, it was originally designed for video game live streaming, people play lots of other kinds of games on Twitch, including tabletop RPGs, TTRPGs, as we like to call them, like Dungeons and Dragons. So interestingly, like when I actually went and looked at the dates, I was like, oh, this really lines up. So a lot of that podcasting and streaming actual play content aligned with the release of 5e, which was being framed by Wizards of the Coast and I think experienced by a lot of the nerd community as an entry point, not only for new players, but also for new potential audiences to watch other people play. Okay, and so then we have a whole bunch of people learning how to play without knowing people who are already playing. Yes, exactly. So for example, the McElroy Brothers' massively popular podcast, The Adventure Zone, which has been developed into a series of hugely successful graphic novels, was launched in 2014. Prior to the full release of 5e, they actually started by playing through the introductory adventure that Wizards of the Coast had published to teach people the new system. Now that's a service. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, 100%. And you actually got to hear them learn how to play this new edition in real time while also getting to hear, you know, the story that they were improvising. Right. That's beautiful. Yeah. And then the year after that, in 2015, nerd icon Felicia Day found out that some voice actor friends of hers had been playing a home game of D&D for the past few years. And she asked if they would like to start live streaming it for her YouTube and Twitch channel, Geek and Sundry. Huh. And they had been playing because they'd been playing since like 2012 or 2013. They'd been playing an older edition, but they converted the campaign to 5e because the more rules light edition worked better for live gameplay. Like there's less math and like less Ah. having to like stop and look things up. Like it's just a more straightforward game. So they were like, cool, let's just make it 5e because that will work better for like live streaming. So I might've missed something earlier, but you just mentioned they had been playing for years. Now, do you mean they've been playing the same game? Like the same campaign? They've been on the same journey Yeah. For years? Yeah, yeah. So this is another one of the characteristics of how D&D is played. You can do something that's referred to as one-shots, which is a game that's played only in one session. But generally, campaigns, which is what they're referred to as, last for years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's like an an emotional investment. And the game's built to reward that. Like, you level up as you go and you can make leveling up decisions that are based in discoveries you make about the character as you're playing. Okay. Yeah. So like as you play, not only can you gain more powers by Mm -hmm. leveling up or gain more abilities, whatever, but you can also learn more things about your character like in real life 
when I like discover that giving gifts is a love language and all of a sudden things about myself start to make more sense. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's part of what makes watching actual play or listening to actual play so pleasurable Mm. is that you get to watch these players actually learn about the characters as they're playing because it's a fundamentally improvisational form. That's really cool. It's really, it's really cool. I really love it. Um, and you know what? Lots of other people do as well. So that aforementioned Geek and Sundry series, which is known as Critical Role, oh, became um, so successful that they're basically their own multimedia publishing empire at this point. They've got spinoff books and comics and players' manuals and an animated series on Amazon Prime that raised $11.3 million on Kickstarter. Holy yeah. guacamole. And again, a big part of the appeal is watching people actually play with the potential of learning to play alongside them. Okay. I have another question. Good. So initially, you linked the exclusivity of D&D to its lack of diversity. So, so these immensely popular series, The Adventure Zone and Critical Role, are they more diverse? Not really. Uh, so, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the okay. adventure zone is four straight white guys, and Critical Role does have women. <laughs> are they mostly married to the male players? They are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. But Critical Role was also one of the players uh, in the original cast was black, but he left very shortly after it became a series, and so the core cast is also all white. But what we are seeing a decade after the release of 5e and the rise of actual play is that the net effect of these changes has been a massive diversification of who plays D&D and mm. in turn of who makes live play media, which in turn leads to more diverse people playing D&D because they're seeing people like them playing it, which in turn leads to more diverse media and so on. So it's been this kind of snowball effect. So is it possible that perhaps some of the reasons why, say, the Adventure Zone and Critical Role became so popular was it also maybe had to do with the privileged makeup of the people playing, you know, like not that they were the first, but that the success was amplified by their um, white privilege? Undeniably. And it's part of why they were able to, like, build a foundation with a core audience of D&D fans who were disproportionately straight white men and who, like, particularly when you hear, like, some of the women on the Critical Role cast talk about, like, the early days of making the show, Mm. they deal with a lot of hostility from that, like, core fan base. (laughs) But they also did a lot of boundary pushing in terms of, like, the representation that they chose to lean into via their characters. So mm-hmm. there's a really lovely piece in Autostraddle called Queering D&D, in which the author, Valerie Ann, explains how seeing the players in critical role create explicitly queer characters, because a lot of the characters in critical role are canonically queer, gave the writer an entry point into playing the game with other queer friends because it felt like, oh, D&D can actually be for and about queerness. Mm -hmm. And there's also a really huge queer and trans fandom around the Adventure Zone in large part because one of the 
three main characters in the original campaign, again, was canonically queer and had a, a canonically trans twin sister who for a lot of like nerds in the 20 teens was like a pretty revelatory representation of like a badass trans woman who had a bunch of great fucking one-liners. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So politics of representation, important matters. Important. Essential to consider when we always historicize. Mm-hmm. Coach. Historicize, historicize. It's always time to historicize. So people see themselves represented in D&D media and then feel empowered to try it out themselves. <laughs> but can you tell me a little bit more about the gameplay itself and how that's changed? Because having not played the original, I would like to hear more about how it's different. You did mention less math, which that's a bonus for me. Definitely less math. And Marcel, rather than explaining the rules for D&D 5e to you in <laughs> detail, um, instead I'm going to do something even nerdier and I'm going to give you some theory. Well, you know what, Hannah? I'm game for it. Oh, I get it. You come face to face with the dreaded theorist. It hits you with a bolt of incomprehensible academic jargon, but luckily you deflect it with your shield of public scholarship. Now roll to understand theory, because it's time for the theory we need. That's very good. That was really, really Thank good, you. Hannah. Thank you so much. Also, very nerdy. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I know. Okay. Today, Marcel, we are going to be talking about the field of ludology. Tell me, do you know what that word means? Okay, I do, but I don't know why. I Ooh, know. Fun. No, I mean, th so ludology is one of those terms that, like, I definitely didn't just come across it. Like, I must have learned it in school. It's a study of games, right? Mm -hmm. But, like, why? Why do I know that? And that's what really bothers me. But that's for <laughs> that's a conversation to have with my therapist and not yeah. <laughs> with you right now. Yeah. So it is, you're right, the study of games. Mm -hmm. And any particular kind of games? All kinds of games. But as a critical field, it really came into its own in the late 90s and early 2000s with the rising cultural significance of video games. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that branch of game studies early on started grappling with a really key question, which is how to study video games, specifically whether they should be studied as narratives through the established methodologies of literary studies or if they should be studied as games by looking at like the platform logics, the rules, the gameplay, etc. Quick question. Uh -huh. When I talk about the mechanic of a game, mm. I say I really mm -hmm. like that mechanic. Am I doing am I doing a ludology? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Okay. 100%. Thank you. So that debate, which is usually summarized as narratology versus ludology, mm -hmm. really dominated the early years of game studies, and it's woven through a lot of the early key texts. Okay. So, for example, I want us to take a look at a 2007 article by games designer and sci-fi writer Greg Kostikian called Games, Storytelling, and Breaking the String. 
in which he summarizes the seeming tensions between stories and games. Quote, A story is linear. The events of a story occur in the same order and in the same way each time you read or watch or listen to it. A story is a controlled experience. The author consciously crafts it, choosing precisely these events in this order to create a story with maximum impact. If the events occurred in some other fashion, the impact of the story would be diminished. Or, if that isn't true, the author isn't doing a good job. A game is nonlinear. Games must provide at least the illusion of free will to the player. Players must feel that they have freedom of action. Not absolute freedom, but freedom within the structure of the system. The structure constrains what they can do, but they must feel they have options. If not, they are not actively engaged. Rather, they are merely passive recipients of the experience. If they are constrained to a linear path of events, unchangeable in order, they'll feel they're being railroaded through the game, that nothing they do has any impact, that they are not playing in any meaningful sense. In other words, there's a direct, immediate conflict between the demands of story and the demands of a game, end quote. Beautifully read. Now tell me if you agree. I am struggling with it, to be honest. <laughs> I agree in part that a story, like the printed word, is printed literally in an order. But mm -hmm. one's experience of reading a story or even being told a story isn't necessarily linear, like the way in which you respond or engage with a story. So what he's saying about stories just being linear is not true. I don't agree. Yeah, he also just fully ignores the existence of oral storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the oldest form of human art. <laughs> sure, sure, no big okay. deal. Yeah. So remember I said that ludology emerged around video games? Mm -hmm. Well, intriguingly, Kostikian opens his article by claiming that, quote, before 1973, if you had said something like games are a storytelling medium, just about anyone would have looked at you as if you were mad, and anyone knowledgeable about games would have assumed you knew nothing about them, end quote. And what changed after 1973? Dungeons and Dragons was released. Yes, precisely. So with the rise of role-playing games, we get the emergence of games as storytelling or storytelling being gamified and, you know, the rise of the attendant tensions that Kostikian summarizes and that so many game studies scholars were arguing over. Mm -hmm. And it's a tension I think we can see in those different editions of D&D &D as well, with a push and pull between systems that emphasized rules and structures and systems that emphasize storytelling. Mm -hmm. But notice how in that version of the tension, it's stories that are organic and flexible and responsive and <laughs> rules that are structured and unchanging. <laughs> It's like it's a false binary. <laughs> yeah, how about that? How about that? Like, really, any binary we set up turns out to be, like, truly arbitrary and not particularly useful. I was worried because, you know, honestly, when I started reading, I was like, oh, no, there's no way that this is what Hannah thinks. And yes. yet, and yet... <laughs> And yet, this quote... Yeah, no, 100%. It's a piece that's anthologized in, like, the earliest collection of game studies scholarship. Like, it really characterizes the way 
people were trying to think about gameplay and trying mm. to theorize it. And we're like, well, yeah. it's a new thing, so it can't be anything like story. So we have to make it the opposite of story. It's like, <laughs> nah, dog. Even like the history of sports is also a history of storytelling, you know, like <laughs> you have the the underdog and you have the like the winning to, you know, like there's there's so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> OK, it's fine. It's fine. It's OK. Yeah. So you know what? That article, <laughs> solid historical example of the way people were thinking, not Precisely. necessarily useful as an argument for yeah. storytelling. And, in and you know play, what we but. love to do? We love to historicize. Love it. Historicize, historicize. It's always time to historicize. So luckily, more recent scholarship has pushed beyond that binary to think about how and why people play games like D&D in more expansive ways. There's a very interesting 2019 book called Dread Trident, Tabletop Role-Playing Games and the Modern Fantastic, by English scholar Curtis D. Carbonell. And in that, they argue that we need to consider the whole range of analog and digital texts that D&D players and fans interact with. Mm -hmm. So if we're like looking at D&D, we can't be like, is it a game or is it a story? We have to be like, okay, there's these volumes of traditionally published manuals, Mm -hmm. which, you know, can be read narratively like texts. And then there's the user-generated content that's often published for free online. Like people will make up their own campaign settings or their own like Mm. homebrewed classes. And then there's the digital world of podcasts and Twitch streams and web series. And then there's all the game tools like paper and pencils and dice. We love collecting dice. I have like seven or eight sets of dice and I am a very dice light player. And then there's, you know, maps and mini figurines that you can make of your character and platforms for playing virtually that got way more popular during the pandemic. And there's digital soundboards you can use to create soundscapes for the settings of different scenes that you're role playing. And then there's that's charming web artists who basically make their living doing custom drawings of people's D&D characters. And then there's fan conventions where people cosplay as the characters that other people made up in a D&D actual play <laughs> series and then pose in pictures with the people who played those characters. And all of that stuff augments and enhances the gameplay, moving out of the realm of representation into what Carbonell calls realization, mm. which is altogether more immersive and creative and imaginatively engaging. And so rather than games being the opposite of stories, we get these story games or game stories that are actually really complex, immersive transmedia worlds. Yeah. And they're worlds that are realized through the act of play. Mm. So if we go back to that question of how the rise of D&D actual play media alongside the redesigned gameplay of 5e contributes to both the expansion and diversification of D&D players, we have to think about the way the actual act of playing the game can change what the game is. So despite the game's many flaws, and it has some real structural flaws that we can talk about in the next segment if you want, queer and trans and racialized players are changing the game by playing it. Hannah, you are getting perilously close to a thesis right now. Yeah, you're right. You know what? Let's just cut to the chase. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I guess it's time for you to roll for a thesis statement. I have plus 12 to thesis statements. Ooh. I don't know what that means, but it sounds good. It's very impressive. It's like a really high, anyway. Uh, him, him. Traditionally associated with a niche form of white male nerd culture that was hostile to outsiders, Dungeons & Dragons has become not only a mainstream form of popular culture, as exemplified in TV series like Stranger Things and movies like the 2023 Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves, which has 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, by the way. But a meaningfully diversifying transmedia phenomenon populated by actual play series, fan art, cosplay, and more. The game's expansion in the past decade can be linked both to the emergence of actual play podcasts and Twitch live streams, as well as the streamlined and storytelling-focused redesign of the popular 5th edition. Through the interaction and overlap between players, fans, and content creators, D&D has expanded not only through its shifting representations, but also, and even more vitally, through its transformative realizations. In this essay, I will... I want to talk about the problematic stuff, though. This all sounds insist. great. But at the end of the day, we've got classes and races. We've got classes and races. And a lot of white guys who are like, it's not, it's not racist. It's not racist. It's not it's, racist. There's just dark elves and they have black skin and they're evil. But it's not racist. Don't worry about it. It's not racist. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. I, because Tolkien, right? Because Tolkien, yes. So if we look back to the properties that inspired D&D, mm -hmm. the sort of two big influences were Tolkien on the one hand and then pulp fantasy, a la Conan the Barbarian, on the other hand. Okay. So, in the original edition, they just called them hobbits and ents and, like, mm -hmm. made up fantasy creatures that had literally been made up by Tolkien. And then the right. Tolkien estate was like, hey, guys. Nah, nah, nah. So, then they renamed the hobbits halflings. Okay. And they renamed the ents treants. <laughs> Not to be confused with Ents. No, no, no. Very different. This one has tree in it. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. Okay. If you look at the art from the early edition, like it's all pulp magazine, mm -hmm. like big, burly, muscly guys, and then like ladies in fur bikinis Ooh. is the vibe. Sexy. I yeah. think. Maybe this is revelatory for some folks, but I, I feel like a lot of us, even if we're not immersed in the D&D universe, like D&D is conspicuously built on the Lord of the Rings or Tolkien's Im imaginative world more generally, right? Like that's not a controversial thing to say. That's like... 
it, it's not. It's Gygax denied it for years, and then he was like, okay, well, I guess. <laughs> um, but like, it is. It's not exclusively based on that. Like, he stole quite, or they, Arneson and Gygax, like stole, um, sort of. Uh, they were equal opportunity ah, thieves of, you know, like like a kind of you know like a rolling type where it's just like. I'm just going to pick from whatever I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Just like a smorgasbord of things that might have been part of the popular imagination. Yeah, precisely. Often with like no thought into the politics behind those popular representations. Right. Um, You know, we're talking right now about representation, but Mm -hmm. those logics are baked into the gameplay. So when you are creating a new character, you begin by choosing your character's race and class. Mm Mm-hmm. Your character's race is their, like, humanoid subspecies. Right. But human is an option, right? Human is an option. So you could be human or you could be one of these numerous other subspecies that are similar to humans or humanoid but are not. But are not human. Yep. The other races are not human. Mm-hmm. And they are biologically different. Mm-hmm. So, like, they're elves or they're half-orcs or they're halflings or they're tieflings which are you know part human part demon Mm -hmm. they're like these other like biologically distinct entities Mm -hmm. and when you are building your character the race that you choose has a bunch of like stable mechanical impacts on your character so some races Mm -hmm. are faster than other ones some races are stronger than other ones some races are sneakier than other ones. Are some races better at managing money than other ones? <laughs> Are some races smarter? Are some races more civilized? I, like basically, right? Yeah. Like it yeah. really has encoded into the gameplay this like really disturbing racial logic. Mm-hmm. And then you also have class. And your character's class is the kind of guy they are. Mm. So a wizard or a sorcerer or a barbarian or a bard or a, you know. I tend to lean towards bards whenever, on the rare occasions that I have had the opportunity to play. Yeah. Because I feel like, I feel like you, being an entertainer. In life. Being an ESFP. Yeah. <laughs> what else could I be? <laughs> I will tell you, I have spent a lot of my D&D career playing like wisdom based builds when you're when you're creating a character you kind of choose like what their big strengths will be is it like when you're a wizard you're mostly intelligent like mm-hmm. wizards are intelligence based mm-hmm. and then that's like you need high intelligence to be good at being a wizard but then you're also good at all the other things that are intelligence based <laughs> and i have tended to play like intelligence or wisdom builds and in my current campaign which is DM'd by a friend of the pod, Marshall. I'm playing a charisma build, which means that I'm good at lying to people and persuading people of shit. (laughs) And baby, I should have been playing a charisma build this whole time. (laughs) I fucking love lying to people. (laughs) It's really fun. Oh, my God. Yeah, getting to tell just an outrageous lie and then roll for it. And if you roll well, (laughs) then you get away with it. That's the best. Incredible. The absolute best. Okay. Um, Okay. Yeah. So we've got these like stable categories that have at the gameplay level, like have these real 
impacts on how the characters actually can move through the world. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the that's part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I guess one of the questions that I kind of have, it's not a question for you per se. It's like something that I want to think through. Like hearing you describe these two guys who just got together and made up a game and then self-published it, it really makes me think a lot about when you and I, just a couple of guys, got drunk and started making a podcast. Like they couldn't have known how successful it would become. Undeniably. But thinking about you and me and the way that we have, and I think continue to constantly try to be more self-critical, be more self-aware, be more um, attentive to the impact of the things that we do, the way that we talk, the people we invite on the show. I feel like basically from the moment people started listening and saying, hey, you said a thing and it hurt my feelings. Could you not? And then we were like, oh shit, people are listening. So I guess what I'm trying to say, in addition to, to like, patting ourselves in the back for just being the best guys, just the best guys. (laughs) Um, These folks, um, it seems like maybe they went longer without attending to the harm. (laughs) Without attending to the harm. Yeah. Yeah. And a a big part of that is that when we think about um, homosocial environments, which is to say environments where everybody's the same, Mm -hmm. then people often don't notice the things that they have built into those environments that make them hostile to people who are not the same as them. Right. So if you're looking at like a room full of white guys playing a game, mm-hmm. they don't even understand themselves as being racialized. Right. And so how would they necessarily understand race as like a complex lived experience? Mm-hmm. So we we can see how a lot of these aspects of it were able to remain stagnant. Mm -hmm. And a thing that I think is interesting in 5e is that they were beginning to really think at that time about what changes they had to make to expand the audience beyond the conventional associations. Mm -hmm. And you see that, for example, in the 5th edition player's manual, where the art itself is much more diverse. Mm -hmm. And you can see, like, women not in fur bikinis, and you see people (laughs) with lots of different skin tones and lots of different builds and ages. Listen, some of us wear fur bikinis, and that's cool. It just doesn't make any sense. If it's hot enough for a bikini, why fur? Why fur? You know, (laughs) and that's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Sometimes fashion is for look and not for Sometimes function. fashion is for look. You know what? Some some bathing suits <laughs> are for lounging by the pool and some are for swimming. That's really fair. You're not getting in the pool in your fur bikini. Yeah. So, so you know, there was this effort at the level of representation mm-hmm. to be more inclusive and some effort at the level of gameplay to also be more inclusive, but inclusive in a different way. Okay. Right? The way that they shifted the gameplay, I think was really focused on um, making the game accessible to people who weren't already familiar, who liked the storytelling aspect, who liked the performance aspect, who liked the improvisation Mm -hmm. aspect. But the gameplay in 5e, I don't think was changed in a way to meaningfully think about, um, you know, gender and class and race as 
political formations and identities. Mm, and okay. there's a new edition coming out this year. They're releasing Sixie this year. Ooh, Sixie and I don't sounds know, sexy. Sixie. And I don't know anything about it, but I'm going to be really curious to see what mechanics they have changed mm-hmm. in light of how much more like structurally diverse the D&D community is. Totally. Like yeah. how many queer and trans and gender nonconforming people are like high profile D&D players or DMs, how many black people and indigenous people and people of color are like high profile like D&D celebrities. A lot of those people came out of the world of comedy and improv. So there's been like a huge port of like the improv scene into D&D because it is like fundamentally an improvisational form. A logical union. And there's so many like live play series, you know, podcasts and video series that are using the mechanisms of D&D to like tell totally different kinds of stories. So like, mm-hmm. for example, friend of the pod, Aaron Keefe has a D&D podcast called Sitcom D&D, mm. which basically uses the mechanics of D&D to like improvise one-off like sitcom episodes. So people are doing like really creative and fun things yeah, by like hacking the rules a little bit. One of my favorite other D&D podcasts is called Rude Tales of Magic. Ooh. And they often have arguments about whether or not they're quote unquote actually playing D&D because they like it's so rules light. Like it's so it's like 98% improv, 2% rules. Mm. And one of the producers is like, no, the first rule of D&D is that the DM can change any rules that they want for the sake of the storytelling. So you are fully playing rules <laughs> adhering D&D according to the player's manual. And the DM is like, no, I'm not. I'm telling stories. <laughs> and once an episode, I make somebody roll a die. But like that, you know, that debate itself points to the way that like the game has expanded so far out into the world of storytelling mm-hmm. and media creation and as people see it being treated more and more flexibly and then feel like oh I can also thus treat it flexibly Mm -hmm. that you know creates more inclusive gameplay environments but it also allows people to be like cool my character is going to be non-binary my character is going to be like I'm going to multi-class because I don't like the idea of having to be a stable thing. Or like, mm-hmm. yeah, my character is going to be an elf, but I'm going to make it really clear that my character is also Asian. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. that's going to be a meaningful part of their identity and their history. Yeah, And so, you know, those kinds of things that are like, it's not built into the game at all, but the way people are playing it creates an environment of ever greater permission to do that kind of hacking the game which again is why for me the difference between um the representation and the realization is really crucial like Mm -hmm. it's one thing to show like look at this cool character art like it's more diverse and it's another thing to be like well what actually happens to the game itself when people who are historically gatekept from this activity like get really fucking into it Like, we change it. I feel like it sounds really good, but I feel like... So it's too good to be true? Incorrect. It's perfect. So I don't want to say that this sounds too good to be true because I 
like you firmly believe that when you are playing a thing the way that you are playing, you're playing the thing, you know? So like mm-hmm. if you are playing D&D and you are following the official rules that say that you can change the rules and you roll a die one time, sure, you're playing. But I'm willing to bet that there are purists out there who are like, it's not real D&D. But that's not real d Undeniably. So where are they? What are they doing? I mean, they're like being sad in a corner because nobody cares about them anymore. They're still in the basement. They're <laughs> they're unfortunately still in the basement. Yeah. So I find Critical Role a really interesting example around this. So the dungeon master for Critical Role, Matt Mercer, is like a super, super long-term D&D player. He's one of those guys who truly has the rules, like, Mm. unbelievably memorized. Mm -hmm. Like, he knows them inside and out. He can rule lawyer you to death if necessary. He knows every mechanic of this game. He likes playing with the rules. Like, that's his version of what makes the game fun. So, like, for example, as a magic user, you generally need to have material components to cast spells. Okay. So, like, oh, if I want to do this spell, like, I need... You know, lower level spells, it'll be like, oh, a feather and some dust. But higher level spells will be like a ruby worth 500 gold. And he really insists that like if you are a magic user, you buy your fucking spell components. Okay. Like you have to have them. You can't just cast magic because then you're overpowered. Like you can just revivify people whenever you want. Absolutely not. So you have to you have to go to the market stall. You have to have 500 gold. You have to buy your ruby from an NPC and then you can... Yeah. Cast your spell. Okay. However, mm-hmm. because Critical Role has such an enormous audience and platform, they've been very deliberately bringing other dungeon masters in to lead other mini campaigns mm-hmm. who are both like meaningfully more diverse mm-hmm. and also who play differently or who DM differently. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's a real intentional modeling of like, there isn't just one right way to do this. There isn't just one right way to be a dungeon master. So one of my favorite celebrity dungeon masters is Abria Iyengar, Mm -hmm. who is this like very cool, incredibly hot and extremely tall black woman. Um, (laughs) Anyway, she, like the way that she DMs is very story first Mm. and very character first. Mm -hmm. And she will do things like, be like, nah, I think this idea that you had is really cool. So, like, just roll again. Just try again. Or, yeah. like, okay, technically you can't do that, but, like, I'm going to let you do it because it was, like, a really interesting character-driven decision. Hmm. And and so, you know, we get this opportunity to see modeled a, an approach to playing the game that is about relationships and storytelling and improv and interaction, not about, like, just clinging to the rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Okay making sure that that kind of gameplay is happening on these really high-profile platforms also helps to sort of render less acceptable the kind of policing that that subset of nerds are still trying to do. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you can keep doing it if you want, but your heroes don't like it. Right. Like, the guy that you're looking up to as like, oh, like, this is the guy I want to be, like, he doesn't think it's cool. He doesn't think it's interesting. He's not down with it. When you were were bullying, like, that woman player, that's his wife and he thinks you're an asshole. So, like, there is, you know, by actually 
modeling different kinds of play, it's rendering it less acceptable in a lot of those spheres to like be that kind of fan. Mm-hmm. They're still out there. Of mm. course they are. Of course they of are. Of course they are. Like, it's just that they don't get to take up all of the oxygen in the room anymore. Mm-hmm. They don't get to determine who has access and who doesn't. And they are starting at a very material level to be outweighed enough by other fans mm-hmm. that there is like the money and audience support behind other kinds of actual play media. That's very satisfying. Yeah, it is really satisfying to watch them not have all the money and power anymore. I, for one, look forward to the fall of the patriarchy. (laughs) Sorry, what was your question? I have one other thing that I want to bring up, but I could just save it for a later episode, maybe. I think it's a bigger conversation. Like, I kind of want to talk about Hasbro and about the fact that, like, all of this diversification (laughs) and uh, accessibility has arisen alongside the ownership, (laughs) alongside the purchase by a huge um, game monopoly um, and business. And yeah, a huge game monopoly, which which is making business decisions probably not out of the goodness of their heart, but out of an eye on the bottom line. And actually, it is sometimes the case Actually, in a lot of spheres, it's the case that if you step back and look at the bottom line, inclusivity is better for your profit margins. That's right. Because more people can do the thing. If people were just doing capitalism correctly instead of gatekeeping, capitalism is freedom for everyone. There's a fundamental incoherence to white supremacy that often, despite the fact that it is like deeply entwined with capitalism, often Mm -hmm. works against the very logics of capitalism. Totally. Because it is not a logical system. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's based on like fundamentally made up stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So what is so interesting about your point, Marcel, is the way that they are responding to pressures from their base. Mm-hmm. So, so for example, they released a campaign book recently that had these like sort of half monkey, half humanoid characters who had historically been enslaved. No. And like shipped around on boats. Nope. nope and nope, nope. they put it out and like a huge number of people were like, hey, what the fuck, Wizards of the Coast? And their response was like, they pulled it and they've created a new policy where they will have like a consultation process for every new piece of material that comes out. Okay. Like whether or not they think that it's actually needs one. They're just like, cool, clearly we can't be trusted. Yeah. So we are going to put a consultation process in place for everything we do. Okay. I like, I like. Yeah. Hannah, So something that's really standing out to me as we have been recording this episode is just seeing how like lit up you are talking about this entire universe. And um, I see your face fairly regularly, not as much as I'd like, but fairly regularly. And I rarely see you this delighted, delighted. And so I was wondering if um, for me, for the listeners, for the people, give the people what they want. Can you talk about what D&D gives back to you? Yeah, 100%. Um, 
So I started playing when I moved to Vancouver. I started playing with Marshall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the act of playing has been one of my most consistent outlets for my very favorite thing, which is making art with friends. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, in Edmonton, we would do these like jam nights where we would all get together and just like play music and sing. And playing d d feels the same to me. It feels like getting together with a group of friends and making art together for a few hours. Like building that collaborative art making into my life is like so, so important to me. It's why I love singing in choirs. It's why I love jamming with people. And it's why I love D&D. And its importance to me has only gotten higher in recent years as D&D actual play series have become my primary source for like meaningfully queer stories that Mm. I can be really invested in that are like so much queerer than anything you see on mainstream TV (laughs) that are so much more diverse, so much more interesting, and that I have like a community that I share them with. So for three years now, we're just coming up on our third year anniversary, me and a group of friends have been watching like a D&D live play thing together once a week. It's really nice. We call we call our group chat the cousins. Um cousins. <laughs> We're not each other's cousins. <laughs> and some of us, you know, I know everybody in the chat, but some of the people in the chat have never met in real life. Mm-hmm. But um friends of the show Claire and Lucia who mm-hmm. have been part of this for, you know, 3 years, they've proposed a conference paper together about like D&D live play and parasocial relationships and those turning into like real friendships during the pandemic (laughs) that they're going to go to Chicago and deliver at a conference. And that will be the first time they meet in real life. I love that. It's it's formed a lot of like real and valuable relationships for me and communities for me. And a big part of it is that like we can gather around the storytelling that actually like really feels like it has space for us. Not like we're an afterthought or a token inclusion, but like that it's that it's made with us in mind. Yeah. Um, and that feels so fucking good. Yeah. Material Girls is a Witch Please production and is distributed by ACAST. You can find the rest of our episodes and our other podcasts on ACAST or at ohwitchplease.ca. The same website has a veritable dragon's hoard of other content, including links to sign up for our Substack and our Patreon, as well as transcripts, reading lists, and merch. If you have questions, comments, concerns, or frankly just want to tell us all about your D&D character... You can find us on Instagram, Threads, and X, formerly known as Twitter, at OhWitchPlease, and on TikTok at OhWitchPleasePod. And if you want to level up your support of the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash OhWitchPlease to find an embarrassment of bonus content. Special thanks to everyone in the Witch Please Productions Adventuring Party, our digital content sorcerer, Gabby Iori, our bard of social media and marketing, Zoe Mix. Our audiophile artificer, Malika Gumpankum. 
and our paladin of production, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. At the end of every episode, we will thank everyone who has joined our Patreon or boosted their tier to help make our work possible. Our enormous gratitude goes out to Eva G, Jackson B, Corey C, Shelly S, and Armando G. We'll be back next episode to tackle another piece of pop culture through a whole new theoretical lens. But until then, later role players. I'm more-